This is the word of the Lord. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery that, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Father, as we come to what we believe are words from you, would you help us entrust our lives to our faithful and good creator? Would you help us to come trusting that when you speak, you speak what is life for us. And trusting in that, would you help us to open ourselves to your confrontation, to your comfort, to your call on our lives. We come trusting not only that you are our maker, but you are our redeemer through your son, Jesus Christ. And so we ask that you would keep your promise 
and be present by your Holy Spirit with us. And that he would open our eyes and our ears to receive your word and be transformed by it. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you prepare for pain? How do you prepare for pain? When the doctor is coming and you know he has a needle with him, how do you get ready for that? How do you, for, how do you fortify yourself when you know something difficult is about to happen? Maybe you pretend like it's not going to happen. Uh, maybe you try to psych yourself out with the, the benefits that might come after it happens. Or maybe you're like me and you just sit and worry about the fact that it is going to happen. How do you prepare for pain? That's a, that's a difficult thing to do. It's a tricky task. And it is the difficult task that Peter takes up in this chapter and throughout this letter. He is preparing the church for pain. Verse 1, Christ suffered, so arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Be ready for it, it's coming. Verse 12, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes. He is preparing the church, he is preparing Christians for suffering, for pain. Now I think it's important to realize that Peter here is not addressing the general pain of living in a messed up world. He's not just talking about sickness or disappointment or all the things that come to us because we lived in a world that has been ruined by sin. He is talking more specifically about the pressure that Christians experience on their faith and on the way of life that comes from their faith. He is talking about the resistance that Christians experience against what they believe and against how they should live because of what they believe. And that resistance, that pressure, it is always there. It is always there for Christ's people. It differs in extremities. So that we don't experience this resistance the same way that our brothers and sisters in Syria are experiencing this resistance this morning. But still, the resistance, the pressure, is always there. How do you get ready for that? How do you prepare for that pain that defines us as outsiders and pushes us to become insiders. How do you get ready for that? Well, I think as we look at this chapter, we can see here two ways that this text prepares us for pain. Peter gets us ready for pain by explaining our options and informing our imagination. Explaining our options and informing our imagination First of all, Peter prepares us for pain by explaining our options. Verse 2 draws a very clear line. You will either live for human passions or God's will. 
And this relates to pain and to suffering because Peter is saying, when you experience suffering, you will either continue, endure, seeking the will of God, or you will attempt to tone down the resistance, to relieve the pressure by going to human passions. So we need to ask, what does he mean by human passions. What are human passions? Well, these are not merely human desires. Peter is not denigrating human sexuality. Peter is not denigrating our desires for other types of comfort and pleasure. He's not saying that those are automatically always bad things. Peter is talking about human desire divorced from God. He is talking about the distortion that happens when we separate what we want from what God wants. That's what he means when he talks about human passions. It is our desires ruined by our rejection of God and what he wants. So the option, that or God's will. And so we need to ask, what is God's will? What does God want in contrast to these human passions? And it's there in verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another. You see, God's will does limit our desires, but he limits our desires for the sake of directing them towards love. His limits on our desires are like banks on a river, guiding us and our lives and what we want towards this vision of a community that is loving, that is forgiving, that is nurturing. Directing us towards this vision that God has for His people, for the church as a new humanity beginning to live out what His original intentions for creation were. So, the options are self-centered desires, self-giving love. And Peter doesn't present these options as a neutral observer. He doesn't just lay them out and say that they are equal. No, he brings weight to this choice by saying that God is a judge. God is a judge who will hold all, everyone, accountable for the choice. Of which way of life? Which direction of living? God as a judge will hold all accountable for that. He is the creator who will in the end oppose all of those who continue to reject his design for creation. And it is at this point that we start getting dirty looks from our culture. 
which tolerates, as the culture in Peter's day, our culture will tolerate a belief in God. And it was the same for Peter and his original readers. Their culture tolerated a belief in God. The problem comes when you believe that God is the judge of all, of everyone. There's a show on Comedy Central called Broad City. And I heard someone describe that show as two friends who don't say no to each other. Two friends who don't say no to each other. Isn't that our cultural aspiration? Isn't that what we want? No one to say no to us. And we know that doesn't work, right? We know that doesn't work. We sense that that doesn't work. And it certainly doesn't pass what I call the two-year-old test. Because I believe that two-year-olds are humanity at its most honest. Okay? Now put, two-year-old, put a group of two-year-olds in a room and endlessly affirm them. No one says no to them. How's that going to work out? <laughs> Not good, right? Not good. Someone needs to say no. And the question becomes, who? Who gets to say no? And shouldn't it be our maker? Shouldn't it be the one whose no is not an end in itself? Shouldn't it be the one whose no leads to the yes of creation? Whose no leads us towards this gorgeous ideal of mutual, self-giving love? Shouldn't he be the one who gets to say no? So, Peter says, you will suffer. You will experience pain, pressure, and resistance. And when you do, you have options. And I want you to move towards what God wants, even when it's difficult, even when it's painful, and not return to those self-centered, self-protective, self-indulgent ways of living. But still... That is really difficult, right? Our first impulse when we hurt is to comfort, right? We respond to pain by pursuing pleasure. And still, knowing these options doesn't help us make that choice in many ways. The difficulty, the pressure, the resistance is still there. So... We need to see that this text not only explains our options, but it informs our imagination. Peter helps us prepare for pain by informing our imagination. And I use the word imagination because when he says in verse 1, arm yourselves with a way of thinking, that is less rational thought. And that is more perspective. It's more about how you narrate your life. It's, it's more about how you see the categories through which you see your experiences. 
That's what he's talking about. And he, in this passage, frames our life with Jesus. He frames our life with Jesus so that your pain is connected to Jesus' pain. Verse 13, as you suffer, you share in Christ's suffering. Now notice, that doesn't lessen the pain. That doesn't make suffering easy. What it does is it gives the pain meaning. Viktor Frankl, a very important psychologist, public intellectual of the 20th century, uh, was an inmate at a Nazi concentration camp and was given the responsibility of caring for other inmates and helping them endure the unimaginable horror that they went through. And reflecting on that experience, he wrote that one of the things he learned in that was the necessity of a redemptive view of suffering. He said that people can endure incredible pain if their pain has meaning, if it belongs to a story, if it's a part of something bigger than themselves. Do you see what Peter is doing here? He is giving us a redemptive view of suffering. He says, because of Jesus, your pain belongs to something bigger than you. Because Jesus suffered for you, your suffering becomes a part of a larger story. It means something. So, as Peter frames our life with Jesus, he doesn't just frame the picture of our life. He takes our lives and he paints us into a much larger picture. And if our pain has meaning, then we need to ask, what does it mean? If Peter is saying our pain, our suffering has meaning, then what does it mean? Well, verse 12, he talks about fiery trials, right? And I want you to recall a few things with me. First of all, recall what Peter calls the church in chapter 2. How does he describe the church in chapter 2? He describes the church, the community of Christians, as the temple, right? The dwelling place of God. Now, in the Bible, what is the primary visual expression of God's presence? It's fire, right? So that the temple in the Old Testament, how did they know that God descended and dwelled in the temple? It was, it was, it was the coming down of this image, this shining, burning image. That's how you knew God was there. So, church as temple, God's presence as fire, and what does fire do? Fire does one of two things, it either destroys or it purifies. 
And how does the Bible name the purifying fire of God's presence? What word does the Bible use for that? It's the word that we read again and again in the book of 1 Peter and again and again in this chapter. Glory. It's glory. It is the visible beauty of God. And that's the meaning of your pain. That is the meaning of your suffering. You see, as Peter frames our life with Jesus, he takes and he paints us, even in our pain, in this much larger portrait that when it is done, displays the infinite beauty of our God. Because Christ suffered for you, your sufferings become a part of God demonstrating His beauty. Because Christ has given His Spirit to you, which Peter calls the Spirit of glory, your life, including your pain, is made a part of this story that ends in God's glory. I usually drive to the office here at the church by way of Adams Street. And and often I am delayed on Adams Street by our friend the train. And usually when I am delayed by the train, I make a U-turn right there at the tracks and I come back to Monroe Street where I can drive under the train tracks rather than waiting for the train to be done at the train tracks. And why do I do that? Not to save time. Because it never saves me time. Inevitably, as I'm driving under the train tracks here on Monroe Street, I see the end of the train going by. It doesn't save me any time. It gives me perspective. Instead of sitting there at the crossing and seeing one car pass after another, I can see the whole train and the end of it. This is what Peter does for us in this passage. He helps us see the whole train. And he says, yes, there are cars of pain. There are cars of suffering. There are times when you will feel resistance and pressure against your faith and the life that you want to live in God's will, but back up and see. In the end, it's a glory train. In the end, it is a display of God's infinite beauty. And you know it is good for us to think about that. It is good for us to meditate on that truth. We should think about it. We should meditate on it. But do you know in the end how that becomes our perspective? Do you know how that captures our imagination? The key is there in verse 7. It's in prayer. It is in the practice of prayer. Because in prayer, we don't just think, but we give ourselves. We entrust ourselves. We don't just consider the painting. We trust the artist. We give ourselves to the Creator, who is also the Redeemer, 
who has promised to restore and renew all things and to make us a part of that. The habit of prayer is connecting what we want to the larger picture of what God wants. And Peter learned this from Jesus. He learned it from Jesus. Maybe you remember the night before Jesus goes to the cross, the night before he died. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's with his disciples, and he takes Peter and two other friends, and and they go a little ways from the rest of the group, and then Jesus says to Peter and and his friends, hey, would you stay here, and would you pray, and I'm going to go a little further over there, and I'm going to pray too. And remember, Peter and his friends, they're struggling to stay awake. It's late at night and they're falling asleep. And Jesus keeps coming back to them and says, can't you watch and pray with me? And during that time, what is Jesus doing? How is Jesus praying? He says there's this cup that is full of pain, that is full of of suffering, the ultimate expression of resistance against God and His will. There is that cup, and I don't want to drink it. I don't want to drink it. Nevertheless, Father, Your will, not mine. Jesus entrusts Himself to the faithful Creator. And Peter invites us into that movement as preparation for pain and suffering. That we would bring ourselves to God's will knowing that He's a painter and He's painting glory even when it involves difficulty, resistance, pressure, suffering for us. Most of you know that in a, in a former life, I was a, I was a pretty serious trumpet player. And I was reminded recently about how, how, how terrible it can be to be a trumpet player in an orchestra. I was, I was watching a performance of Bach's B minor mass. And, and I, as I was listening along, all of a sudden I realized, hey, the trumpet players, they're playing. And so I paused the video on YouTube and, and looked at the time and realized that these guys had been sitting there, not playing, for 19 minutes and 7 seconds. Now understand, you don't become a trumpet player without a significant ego. Okay? And so, for someone to tell you to sit there for 19 minutes and 7 seconds and not make a sound, that is pain. That is suffering. That is an attack on your ego. Not fun. So why would one do that? Why would one sit there in silence, suffering? Because it's Bach. And we know that Bach knew how to make something beautiful. That's what it is for us to be prepared for suffering. It is to sit there and to know that our God knows how to make something beautiful. 
even if it involves pain for us. Let's pray.